Yesterday was the 200th anniversary of the Emperor Napoleon's death on the South Atlantic island of St. Helena. And I'm expecting that all of you who've been kind enough to tune into my lecture already noticed that. In this lecture, I will evoke the trajectory of his extraordinary life by talking about some of the gardens that he passed through and the shadows he cast within them. But first, I want to explain why I'm taking such an unusual, some might even say surreal, approach to the life of one of the most important historical figures there has ever been. So as you see, I'm illustrating this first part of my lecture with René Magritte's plaster copy of the Emperor's death mask, overpainted by sky and clouds. There are a number of these masks, um, and this is the Tate's copy. And I'm particularly interested in, in the title translated into English there, The Future of Statues, since we are all of us now conducting a very important debate about how we commemorate and how we approach the lives of great men in the past. I want to start my lecture with what is an unexpected and odd claim, that gardening was the first and last passion of Napoleon Bonaparte, a figure still recognised by his silhouette 200 years after his death. Between cultivating his first garden at school in Brienne-le-Chateau in northern France and his last garden in exile on St Helena, he won and lost an empire. He was born in Ajaccio on the island of Corsica on the 15th of August, 1769. He became Napoleon, Emperor of the French in 1804 and abdicated a decade later. In 1815, he escaped from a brief exile on the island of Elba to reclaim his empire for almost 100 days, lost the Battle of Waterloo and was sent to St. Helena, where he died on the 5th of May, 1821. At the beginning and end of his extraordinary life, gardening offered Napoleon a retreat from the frustrations of powerlessness. A clever Corsican boy who won a scholarship to a military school in France, he spoke French slowly with a heavy accent. He wanted, at times, to shut himself off from his peers, to read, think and remember his home and family on the island of Corsica. He was powerless in the ordinary sense, a child from a secure but modest background with an unknown future ahead of him. After he was sent into exile on St Helena at the age of 46, Gardening was Napoleon's last burst of activity before he died. On the advice of his doctor, he made an elaborate garden where sunken paths helped him evade the surveillance of the British guards. He swapped his iconic beacon hat for a battered straw one and set about cultivating the only patch of ground remaining to him. His interactions with the natural world at the end of his life resonate 
with those of every man or woman who enjoys gardening in retirement or in retreat from the stresses and strains of the world. But Napoleon was no everyman. Earlier in his life, his relationship with nature was determined by his ambition. First, to advance himself within the chaotic aftermath of the French Revolution. And then, to become the most important and feared man in Europe. Even in exile, there were echoes of grandeur in the extensive and meticulous plans he laid out for his last garden. Napoleon spent five years at the military school in Brienne-le-Chateau and six on St. Helena. These blocks of time enclose his life like bookends. They are the periods during which he had little control over the conditions of his everyday life and found refuge in growing plants. In between his first and last gardens, the arc of his life rose towards the sky before falling back down to earth. As his power grew, then declined, he rarely had time for gardening himself. But he passed through many gardens, large and small, public parks, private green spaces, admiring them. Often he ordered improvements, commanding other people's labour, always imagining a grander garden than the one that existed. He was a garden watcher and enthusiast, alert to the science and art of cultivation. He valued gardens as places to walk in at his own pace, as he reflected on the frenetic events by which he hoped to secure the future of France. For someone almost always in motion and in a hurry, more often at war than not, gardens offered rare opportunities for calm and pleasure. They were a counterpoint to the many battlefields, discrete settings in which the terrain and the weather were as important as they were in combat, but for creative, not destructive purposes. On two significant occasions, one at the start of Napoleon's career, the other at the end, a garden became a battlefield and the distinction was lost. The first was the Tuileries Gardens in central Paris, where in 1792 he witnessed the massacre of Louis XVI's Swiss Guard and the fall of the French monarchy. The second was the walled garden of Hougoumont at Waterloo. In both these gardens, the piles of dead and mutilated bodies formed a terrible contrast with horticultural attempts to impose order on the natural world. Napoleon wanted to impose order on France and dreamed of expanding the nation's territory within Europe and beyond. In 1802, when he was first consul and not yet emperor, Samuel Taylor Coleridge described him as poet Bonaparte, layer out 
of a world garden. Almost a decade later, despite his dismay at the violent outcome of Napoleon's power, Coleridge proposed a series of lives from Moses to Bonaparte of all those great men who in states or in the mind of man had produced great revolutions, the effects of which still remain and are more or less distant causes of the present state of the world. Napoleon epitomised the ideal of a self-made man, the corporal from Corsica who came to rule over Europe and crowned himself emperor of the French. His authority was not inherited, but hard won through military and political genius. His rise to power would not have been possible without the French Revolution. But when he made himself hereditary ruler of France, he betrayed the revolutionary ideals that gave him his first opportunities. As a biographical subject, Napoleon has always attracted great male writers who identify with him. Walter Scott travelled to Paris to interview Napoleon's former colleagues and published The Life of Napoleon Bonaparte, Emperor of the French, in 1827. Thomas Carlyle, who declared that the history of the world is but the biography of great men, included Napoleon in On Heroes, Hero Worship and the Heroic in History in 1841. But as David Sorensen has pointed out, Carlyle's attitude to Napoleon was ambivalent. Sometimes he characterised him as our last great man. At other times he criticised him for grandiose dicturpinism, revolutionary madness and unlimited expenditure of men and gunpowder. Ultimately, he saw Napoleon as a reckless gambler whose immense temporary success ended in him losing his last guinea. Carlyle asked that Napoleon be judged according to what nature with her laws will sanction, to what of reality was in him, to that and nothing more. On Heroes, Hero Worship and the Heroic in History was published the year after Napoleon's remains were brought back to Paris from his modest grave on St. Helena to be interred in Les Invalides in a sarcophagus and setting worthy of a world-changing emperor. In 1842, a year after Carlyle's book was published, Charlotte Bronte, aged 26, went to Brussels to improve her French. 16 kilometres from Waterloo, she wrote a short essay on the death of Napoleon, which began by asking, how should one envisage this subject? With a great pomp of words or with simplicity? She distanced herself from the great orators, writers and politicians and set out from the perspective of 
the ordinary person for whom Napoleon would always be a soldier of fortune. This is a quote from Charlotte Bronte's essay. Let her then approach with respect the tomb hollowed out of the rock on St. Helena. And while refusing to bow down in adoration before a god of flesh and clay, preserving her independent, though inferior, dignity of being, let her take care not to cast a single word of insult at the sepulchre, empty now, but consecrated in the past by Napoleon's remains. Charlotte Bronte contrasted the glory of Napoleon, which grew overnight like Jonah's vine, to the glory of the Duke of Wellington, which grew like one of the ancient oaks that shade the mansion of his father's on the banks of the River Shannon. Wellington was her hero, but Napoleon, the outsider, the young soldier, with nothing behind him but courage and talent, was closer to her own experience of the world. On the 4th of August, 1843, the teacher she was in love with gave her a fragment of Napoleon's coffin from St. Helena, which had been given to him by a friend who had been Napoleon's nephew's secretary. She turned it over in her hand and reflected that we all have only the idea of Napoleon we are capable of having. There are no definitive biographical portraits, only one person looking at another, mediocrity looking at genius, perhaps, and casting a cold eye. Bronte's cold eye inspired me to write about Napoleon. What are you going to find to say that hasn't already been said? An older, male, supportive, but sceptical colleague asked at the outset. But if there are no definitive biographical portraits, no final word or conquest of another person's life, then there is always something new to say, no matter how many regiments of biographers have marched across the same ground. Napoleon is the most masculine of subjects and very few women have written his biography, a fact that would have pleased him. He condescended to and dismissed bookish women of the time, especially the novelist and liberal political theorist Madame de Stael. When she first met the young hero, de Stael tried to talk to him about revolutionary politics, about which she was exceptionally well informed. In response, he asked her how many children she had. He believed women should be concerned with childbearing, not politics or literature. 
I do not like women who make men of themselves any more than I like effeminate men, he told his secretary. In retaliation, de Stahl wrote eloquently about Napoleon's egoism. He regards a human being as an action or as a thing, not as a fellow creature. He does not hate more than he loves. For him, nothing exists but himself. All other creatures are ciphers. A shadow is a dark area or shape projected by a body coming between rays of light and a surface. Napoleon was often compared to the sun and his first wife, Josephine, adopted the heliotrope as her emblem with the motto, Vers le soleil, towards the sun. And yesterday, Macron ended his address to the Institute and celebrating the bicentenary of Napoleon's death with the claim that the sun of Austerlitz still shines. But in this lecture, Napoleon is not the sun. Instead, he is firmly situated within the natural world. He is seen by tracing the shadows that he cast over the lives gathered around his and the shadows that he threw across the lawns of specific gardens, a brooding and mysterious presence. Napoleon's shadow, unlike his instantly recognisable silhouette, is not singular or monolithic. The enormity of what his life meant for France, Europe and the world cannot be disputed. But is his shadow great or monstrous? There are many thousands of books about him and almost all of them come down on one side or the other of this question. Rather than weighing Napoleonic questions or reconstructing the motives behind his world-changing actions, I have set out to ground his life by situating it in a series of gardens where the shadows he casts are various and changeable. Plural, not singular. So I'm going to go through now some of the gardens that I am going to talk about. I've already mentioned this one. This is the, the Tuileries Gardens, where um, in August 1792, when he was a young Republican soldier, Bonaparte witnessed the fall of the French monarchy. Later in life, he told his brother Joseph that the carnage he saw in the garden that day affected him more profoundly than any of the subsequent battles he participated in. Around 900 Swiss guards attempted to protect the royal family from the revolutionary crowd. 150 of them had already accompanied the king on his sad walk across the garden to the legislative assembly where he resigned his crown. As he left the Tuileries for the last time, the king remarked that the autumn leaves were falling early that year. The rest of the Swiss Guard remained at the now empty palace. Despite having cannon and ammunition, hundreds were slaughtered in the Tuileries gardens. 
This was because they had received the order from Louis XVI to lay down their arms and return to their barracks. The contrast between the geometrical precision of the garden layout with its neat symmetrical topiary and the corpses of the dead and dying was shocking. The Tuileries Gardens dated back to the mid-16th century, the time of Catherine de' Medici, wife of Henry II of France, mother of Francis II, Charles IX and Henry III. A hundred years later, the garden designer André Lenotre transformed them into a formal garden in the French style, known as Jardin à la Française. Favouring straight lines and symmetry, typically including long avenues of trees, often chestnuts or elms and closely cut hedges of privet, Lenotre's garden reflected the orderly triumph of man's will over nature. With retrospect, Bonaparte was not sure if it was the smallness of the space, the unusual spectacle of a bloody battle inside a garden, the density of dead bodies piled on top of one another, or the fact that he was still young and inexperienced, and this was the first time he had ever seen bloodshed. He remembered walking through the garden in the aftermath of the massacre and seeing well-dressed women behaving with gross indecency, mutilating the genitals of the murdered Swiss guards, seemingly civilised people descending to bestial behaviour. Afterwards, making the rounds of nearby cafes, he noticed the anger in people's faces, sensing revolutionary rage in every heart. He thought he caught people looking at him with hostility and defiance, as though he was somehow suspicious for remaining calm and not sharing their anger. He was more likely in shock, unsure of his future and of what to think in the midst of the revolution. But the sense that the crowd might suddenly turn on him as it had turned on the king and his Swiss guards, never left Bonaparte. It only got stronger, more plausible and haunting over time. So here is our next garden, which is the Jardin de Plon. This is a garden at the heart of, of revolutionary Paris on the left bank of the River Seine a botanical garden. Before the revolution, it was the Jardin du Roy, the king's garden. Louis XIII's doctors established it in the mid-17th century to grow medicinal plants. Later, the Comte de Buffon transformed it into one of the greatest gardens in the world for 50 years until his death in 1788, the year before the revolution began, Buffon planted, propagated and researched in the garden. Bonaparte was introduced to it through his friend, Jean and Doche Junot, who became his aide-de-camp during the siege of Toulon in late 1793. Junot's uncle, the Bishop of Metz, was a distinguished naturalist and a close friend of Louis d'Aubenton, who had been demonstrator of the King's Cabinet of natural history under the old regime 
and was charged with establishing a modern museum, the National Museum of Natural History. When Julien and Bonaparte were in Paris together, they often went for walks in the Jardin des Plantes. Bonaparte loved to go on tours of the greenhouses. The greenhouses were not yet what Junot's future wife would later describe in her memoirs as the finest temple ever raised to nature in the midst of a city, but they were already filled with rare and fascinating plants. By the spring of 1795, Paris was starving. At the Jardin des Plantes, there was nothing to feed the animals in the menagerie, not even horse meat, and over half of them died and became specimens in the museum. Less than a year after the fall of Robespierre, famished citizens looked back with fondness to the regime of terror, remembering that then there was at least bread. It was in this context of a nation exhausted by six years of revolutionary uncertainty and foreign and civil wars that Bonaparte began his rise to power through the army. As he conducted his conquering march through Italy during the first Italian campaign, Bonaparte collected natural history specimens and fine art. The Directory, which was struggling to govern France, appointed a commission of arts and sciences to help him, which included scientists, naturalists and artists. On the 27th of July, 1798, the Directory celebrated its four years in government since the fall of Robespierre with a two-day festival of liberty. The procession began in the Jardin des Plantes at the Natural History Museum, where live animals, including camels, ostriches, lions and gazelles, and 45 cases of specimens were loaded onto wagons decorated with tricolour ribbons and garlands. The crowd sang, Rome is no more in Rome, it is all in Paris. Without Bonaparte's conquests, Rome would still have been in Rome and there would have been no loot to parade. But he was nowhere to be seen. He had already set sail from Toulon for Egypt on a voyage of exploration, leaving his growing reputation for military glory to hover over the festivities. The parade included two floats that bore enormous representations of the rivers Tiber and Nile. On behalf of the Republic, Bonaparte had dominated the land watered by the Tiber. Next would come the land watered by the Nile. So, now we go to Egypt and we find that in Cairo, Bonaparte discovered a newly built, freshly furnished palace that seemed almost to be waiting for him. This was the palace of Al-Afi Bey on Azbakia Square in Western Cairo. The Azbakia area, close to the lake, filled by the Nasiri Canal during the annual flooding of the Nile, had been gradually rebuilt after a fire in 1776. The Alfi Palace was on the waterfront and had just been finished according to the owner's taste when Bonaparte arrived. The palace he appropriated had a very large garden 
which became known as the Garden of the General-in-Chief. He compared it to the gardens of nunneries in Italy, full of magnificent trees, great arbours, the most glorious grapes in the world, but completely lacking in paths and alleys. He ordered improvements, arranging for the installation of walkways, marble basins and fountains, grafting French features onto the existing garden. In his memoirs, he claimed that the natives of the East are not fond of walking. To walk when one might be sitting appears to them an absurdity, which they can only account for from the petulance of the French character. He did not mention that before his time, the waterfront of the Alfie Palace had been a public promenade. Bonaparte had a lifelong interest in science and was deeply proud of his election to the National Institute that had been created by the Constitution of 1795 to replace the Royal Academies which existed before the Revolution. He boasted that he provided Parisian circles with a remarkable spectacle. The young general of the army of Italy in the ranks of the Institute discussing profound metaphysical matters in public with his colleagues. He was determined to establish a new branch of the Institute in Egypt. And this is what we see illustrated here with Bonaparte right at the centre of his group of savant um, scientists and artists who have gone with him. So for the purpose of establishing the, the new institute, two more palaces were appropriated, those of Kasim Bey and Hassan Bey Kachev, surrounded by beautiful gardens in the Al Nasiriya quarter, about two kilometres east of Bonaparte's headquarters in Cairo. At the time, the vast walled gardens bordered by countryside stretching towards the Nile were already divided up in the manner of agricultural fields and planted with willows and a variety of crops. There was a complex system of canal irrigation and cascades of water several stories high. These waterfalls were surrounded by pavilions and terraces shaded by trees. Kasim Bey had opened his magnificent garden to the public, so there were coffee houses, seating areas and latrines for general convenience. Everything was confiscated and converted into the new institute, the main purpose of which was to foster the spread of enlightenment and knowledge in Egypt. Scientific discovery rigorous classification of phenomena and the application of reason to understanding the natural world were among the aims of the Institute, but so too were the more worldly goals of local administration, domination and governance. Bonaparte ordered the establishment of a French and Arabic press, a physics and a chemistry laboratory, a library and an observatory in the garden of the new Institute. The real conquests, he said, the only unregretted ones are those against ignorance. The worthiest and most significant occupation for nations is to enlarge the frontiers of human knowledge, he declared. And yesterday, 
Macron began his address to the Institute in Paris with this quote, which was itself a quotation from Napoleon's first speech to the Institute when he was elected. The chronicler and scholar Abd al-Rahman al-Jabati visited the Institute and was shown the library, the many books on Muslim history and science, and saw the efforts the French scholars were making to learn Arabic. He was also shown the laboratories and the observatory. The vast walled garden of the Institute covered approximately 30 acres. The scholars could walk in it deep into the evening, admiring the beauty of the sky, the perfume of the orange trees, the mildness of the temperature. It is our garden academus, Saint-Hilaire wrote proudly to his father. Writing to his wife, the mathematician Gaspar Monge described his, the garden of the Institute after it had been flooded with the waters of the Nile, as charmingly verdant, almost an earthly paradise, soon a fully-fledged botanical garden filled with animals and vegetable curiosities. It was considered a realisation of the highest goals of the Enlightenment. But in strong contrast, the scholars were dismissive of other gardens that they found in Cairo, in the description of Egypt, the cartographer Jomar recorded that there were 22 important gardens in the city, but warned readers not to imagine gardens in the European sense. Instead, these gardens, according to Jomar, were more like plantations consisting of dense shrubs and vines, bananas, orange and lemon trees, acacias and sycamores. He echoed Bonaparte's complaint that Egyptian gardens were not designed for walking in, but for enjoying from a seat inside a trellis-covered kiosk. Now we come to Malmaison. Um, this is the house that um, Josephine bought before Bonaparte returned from Egypt, and it became their marital home. The previous owner, a wealthy financier, had had a garden of great beauty laid out in the English style. The designer, Jean-Marie Morel, was a leading advocate of the Jardin à la Anglaise and the author of a tract on theories of gardens published in 1776. Instead of the strict formality of the traditional French style, which Napoleon much preferred, the Jardin à Anglaise included winding paths, asymmetric plantings, groves, lakes and follies. When Josephine bought the house of her dreams, she was determined to make an even more enchanting English garden than the one that had existed before the revolution. As Bonaparte's power grew, so too did Josephine's ambitions for her garden at Malmaison. She wanted it to be the most beautiful and curious garden in Europe and a rival to the best botanical gardens in the world, Kew in London and the Chambron and Belvedere Gardens in Vienna. As the wife of the first consul, Josephine often demanded plants from the Jardin des Plantes, but the exchange was not one way. From the beginning, there was close cooperation 
between Malmaison and the Natural History Museum, enthusiastic sharing of samples and botanical knowledge. Now, we come now to an image which is a satirical um, cartoon on the gardening theme. Um, this is from 1802, when Britain was France's only unvanquished enemy. And the two countries which had been at war for almost a decade since the execution of Louis XVI and the start of the terror early in 1793 finally achieved the Peace of Amiens, under which Britain at last recognised the French Republic. But it only lasted just over a year. The Peace of Amiens was signed on the 25th of March, 1802, and ended on the 18th of May, 1803. During that brief interval of peace, Britain could afford to ridicule and dismiss the threat of Bonaparte. So here we see in the cartoon which the artist Charles Williams has depicted George III and Bonaparte in their gardens on opposite sides of the channel, each growing a crown in a tub hooped with gold. George III is plainly dressed, wearing a gardening apron and leaning on a spade. Bonaparte is in military dress, but has also donned a gardening apron and oversleeves. George III's crown thrives at the top of a vigorous oak sapling. But Bonaparte's crown droops, unsupported by a wilting plant. Behind Bonaparte are rows of red flowers in pots labelled military poppies and a wheelbarrow filled with coins into which he has stuck his sabre. On the side of the wheelbarrow is written, this is manure from Italy and Switzerland. The caption above Bonaparte's head reads, why I don't know what is the reason my poppies flourish charmingly, but this corona imperialis is rather a delicate kind of plant and requires great judgment in rearing. George III, pointing to his healthy crown, replies, no, no, brother gardener, though only a ditch parts our grounds, yet this is the spot for true gardening. Here, the corona britannica and the heart of oak will flourish to the end of the world. At this time, Madame de Stahl noticed how monarchical institutions were rapidly advancing under the shadow of the Republic. There was now a Praetorian guard, crown diamonds had been used to decorate the first consul's sword, and his dress, covered with gold, echoed the old pre-revolutionary regime. He seemed to her a parvenu, with the, all the audacity of a tyrant. Within a year, de Stahl's outspokenness would result in Bonaparte exiling her from Paris for a decade, insisting that she stay at least 40 leagues away. And now we're going to talk about the imperial gardens, which in many respects are uh, fantasy gardens or, or, or projected gardens. So Napoleon was um, advised by Dominique Denon, director of the museums in Paris, 
that the most useful thing he could do in Rome was to create a salubrious space in the centre of the city. He suggested a vast garden to include the capital, the Forum and Palatine, stretching as far as the Oppian Hills. The ancient monuments, Rome's sole resource, would be spectacular ornaments in such a garden. Denon thought the cost would be around three million francs. He knew that Napoleon was particularly keen to create jobs for the poor who had been left vulnerable and without sustenance by the closure of convents and the end of old religious practices. In just three or four years, Denon reassured Napoleon, he would have done more for the Romans by creating this vast garden than the popes had ever done. In Paris, meanwhile, Napoleon wanted to build a new forum to rival that of ancient Rome. For many years, there had been talk of connecting the Louvre to the Tuileries Palace to make a larger centre of government at the heart of the city. The construction of the Rue Rivoli, running parallel to the Seine on the other side of the palace gardens, was part of this plan. Begun in 1801, when Napoleon was first consul, named after his most dramatic victory in the first Italian campaign, the road opened up a direct route between the Place de la Concorde and the Tuileries Palace and the Louvre. As Napoleon's power increased, his architects, Charles Pessier and Pierre Fontaine, joined in sincerely with his dreams of urban planning, delighting especially in the idea of redesigning the space around the Tuileries Palace and removing the traces of the terror. In 1806, Fontaine noted in his journal that it was still possible to see holes made by cannonballs and the date 10th of August 1792 inscribed on the, façade, on the façades near the Place de la Carousel. Percier and Fontaine's main achievement was the Arc de Carousel, situated between the Louvre and the Tuileries Palace, celebrating the Battle of Austerlitz. It was consciously modelled on the arches of Septimius Severus and Constantine in the Roman Forum. The emperor hoped that aside from the aesthetic benefits of opening up the Place du Carousel, Getting rid of ramshackle buildings and a narrow street so close to the Tuileries where plotters could hide would increase security. After the birth of his son, known as the King of Rome, on 20th of March 1811, Napoleon planned a new enormous palace and garden on Chelo Hill on the north bank of the River Seine between Versailles and Paris. In the emperor's dreams and those of his architects, the new palace would be far superior to Versailles. The first stone was laid on the 15th of August, Napoleon, 1812. That was Napoleon's own birthday and the same day as the attack on Smolensk, a walled city 360 kilometres southwest of Moscow. Despite the disastrous Russian campaign, Fontaine did not notice any slowing down of the, of the project on Chelo Hill until the following year. 
Following calls for Napoleon's abdication in 1814, the fantasy palace on the banks of the Seine shrank to a garden pavilion. And that is what we see here. Move now to the walled garden at Waterloo. Um, Napoleon and Wellington had never faced each other on a battlefield before Waterloo. And when they did, both commanders decided in the course of the battle that the Chateau of Hougoumont was a crucial stronghold to be kept or taken at whatever cost. Hougoumont was a set of buildings, including a chapel, manor house and farm, arranged around two courtyards and mostly enclosed by high garden walls. And you can see the high garden wall there with its loopholes behind the trees. During the Battle of Fleurus in 1794, when French émigré forces opposing the Revolutionary Army had occupied Hougoumont, they found it to be a fully functioning farm with all kinds of agricultural equipment and livestock. In 1861, the novelist Victor Hugo spent two months exploring the battlefield and remains of Hougoumont, which was once again a functioning farm. Wandering around the garden, Hugo could see that it had once been a garden in the formal French style. He found the orchard and counted 38 loopholes in the garden wall, commenting that the wall looked ready for renewed fighting. And yet, the orchard was as susceptible to the month of May as any other. There were buttercups and daisies and high grass, cart horses grazing and washing hanging out to dry on ropes suspended between the trees. The skeletons of dead trees, Hugo wrote, abound in this orchard. Crows fly in their branches and at the far end is a wood full of violets. There was a deep irony and melancholy in the carpet of violets, the symbol of hope for Napoleon's return from his first exile on Elba that Hugo saw or imagined in the wood beyond Hougoumont. As he understood it, Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo was also the definitive defeat of the French Revolution. The mounted Robespierre was unseated, he claimed, at the end of the chapter in Les Miserables, entitled, Is Waterloo to be Considered Good? Robespierre never fought in a battle, might not even have known how to ride a horse, and almost certainly never owned one. There could not have been a greater contrast between Robespierre, the academic lawyer, whose name became synonymous with revolutionary terror, and the soldier Napoleon, who devoted himself to France's glory. I'll just show you the burying of the bodies at Hougoumont before we move now to Napoleon's last garden on St. Helena. So during his um, captivity on St. Helena, in September 1819, a new doctor arrived, sent to Napoleon by his mother, Francoise Carlo Antomarchi, an Italian physician, and it was he who made the plaster cast of Napoleon's face after he died, which became his death mask. 
Antomarchi urged his patient to resume exercise. Where? Napoleon asked. In the gardens, in the fields, in the open air, the doctor advised. Although he was feeling better, Napoleon remained resistant to exercising under the surveillance of the British redcoats, so Antomarchi suggested gardening. You must dig the ground, turn up the earth, and thus escape from inactivity and insult at the same time. The suggestion was well received. Dig the ground. Yes, doctor, you are right. I will dig the ground. By the next morning, he had appointed his Swiss servant, Novares, who had previous agricultural experience, as chief gardener. They were already discussing elaborate plans for expanding the existing gardens. So Napoleon was absolutely delighted with this elaborate birdcage that Chinese labourers brought who had been brought to St. Helena by the East India Company, made for his garden, even though all the birds he put in it died. In a candid moment, Napoleon told General Gourgaud that if he had not been a captive, the life he lived on St. Helena would have suited him very well. I should like to live in the country. I should like to see the soil improved by others, for I do not know enough about gardening to improve it myself. That kind of thing is the noblest existence. At the end of his life, he believed man's true vocation is to cultivate the ground. Dr. Skur, thank you so much. Really fascinating lecture, different way of looking at the man. Yeah, um, there's been some interest online. I hope you might, won't mm. mind answering a few questions. Of course. Um, the first one is, is kind of a general one, an overview. You've talked about the incongruity of violence in the first garden in 1792 mm-hmm. and at Hugomont. Given the extent and nature of his directed changes to the gardens, do you think that they were seen by Napoleon as a different way of ensuring his long-term legacy? So I don't think Napoleon saw his legacy in uh, the effect that he was having on even the the grandest of the gardens. The, The best candidate for that would have been the imagined or planned um, palace for the king of Rome. Certainly, um, he at that point was very interested in finding out, you know, what is the grandest palace that has ever existed? What was the best of the residences that the Roman emperors had? Um, What were the best in his contemporary time? And so he would have imagined that if that palace could have been built with the um, associated gardens, that that would have been um, a a huge physical legacy at the centre of Paris. Thank you. Um, There's a question about Josephine here. Um, What do you think the... um 
To what extent was his interest in gardens influenced by Josephine, who was this distinguished horticulturalist? Yeah. So that's a very interesting question. Um, so they clash in terms of style, as I was indicating. Uh, he is basically um, an advocate of the formal à la française style of gardening, and she wants the picturesque, informal, romantic English style garden. So they definitely have some quite serious disagreements on this topic, which really shows that he cared about the garden and certainly he also cared about the expense on the garden. So he wants always to have the grandest of effects that are possible for the lowest cost and he gets highly irritated by her overspending on the garden by being asked to buy up land so she can knock down the house that's on it and he says you know if I buy this for you I don't want you knocking it down and just putting up a silly grotto there um, so certainly I think the the garden uh, framework is a, is gives access to the, the dynamic between the two of them and in many respects they're they're equals I mean they they are a very well-matched pair um, this is a, a question that might be a bit specific, but let's see. Um, how did Lee and Kennedy in Hammersmith physically get plants to the yeah. Empress Josephine at Malmaison during and post the treaty? Yeah. Who would have arranged the shipping and the details of that? Yeah, that's really very important and very interesting because it's absolutely right. Um, they did manage to get those plants through, even when there were blockades, um, and even uh, when um, you know there was a sort of complete embargo on, on on movement through those waters. Nevertheless, the um, the orders came through to to allow the botanical specimens to to come for Josephine. So um, there's also a sort of um, network of um, of spies and people who who are prepared to carry messages between the two. So it's very interesting that that um, of all the things that that are controlled and ceased that exchange of, of plant matter seems to have continued. This may be a related question. Um, one of our audience members has said, I heard the emperor's roses had free passage. Is that true? Well, yes, that, that's, that's, they're really Josephine's roses, actually, and that, that is related to exactly what I was saying, that, I mean, you know, uh, they, they can, I mean, goodness knows what else came with the plants, you have to wonder. <laughs> Um, were any plants named in honour of Napoleon? And if so, were these grown in his later gardens? So um, there are plants named after, um, roses named after um, Napoleon and Josephine, but they're, they're later, um, they're sort of remembering them really rather than, than in their time. So there's a, a very special rose, a chapeau Napoleon, because it has um, like a conquering casement around the buds before they come into flower. And that conquer encasement looks a little like the beacon hat. So, so that's his. And then, of course, there's the uh, other roses named for Josephine. There are several of them. Souvenir de Malmaison is one, and the Empress Josephine another. 
Um, another question about memorialization through plants, I guess. Did passing sailors take cuttings from the willows around his grave as relics? Yes, absolutely, they did, yes. So, um, you know, the, those willows um, become sort of part of the... The, the myth and a part of the, the sense of the, the grave on, on St. Helena. And there's even a description of one of these willows having um, been blown over because obviously the, the climate is, is, is harsh there and impaled um, on, a, on a spike. And the uh, person who, who observes this says, you know, it's as though out of, out of uh, grief the, the willow was committing suicide around, around the grave. But the, they do um, bring back to, to uh, England, um, I'm, I'm sure, else other countries as well um cuttings and and uh from from those willows and, and then of course they they are replaced i mean the willow doesn't doesn't last for, for so long so they've been been replaced and just uh one final question you spoke about uh at the end of the lecture about the garden at saint helena and his desire to to live in the country do you think that this final garden gave him peace and solace no, um, because it was such harsh conditions apart from anything else. I mean, it was, it's very poignant. I mean, they couldn't get enough water for the roses. He has big ambitions of, you know, moving oak trees around and, you know, all kinds <laughs> of grand schemes. And the reality of the situation is that it is a very, very high altitude, very, very harsh climate. Although saying that, I mean, the remains of the garden um, have, have been looked after and, and indeed you know there is a, a project to to restore them especially the sunken paths that he had set out so um, when they go back to to bring Napoleon's body back to to um, to Paris the people who go already see that since he died so in that 20 year or so um, period the garden, as they remembered it, has completely disappeared. Thank you very much. Thank you for uh, your generosity in addressing the questions from our audience and for your lecture today. I think I can speak for everyone and I say that it was just wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to our audience for attending this afternoon. Um, may I encourage you to join us again this evening for a very different lecture from the Gresham Professor of Law, Professor Leslie Thomas, QC. <coughs> Excuse me. Should the state be more candid about sudden death? So please do join us this evening. Thank you very much.